This is Swordplay. Alex, a pastor in Redlands, California, was arrested at a movie theater after he started preaching during the credits of a showing of Avengers Infinity War. Was this arrest justified? Well, Nick, we'd have to ask the Justice League. And since Marvel has yet to cross into the DC Universe, we are out of luck. Oh, man. You know, and if it had been Justice League, there wouldn't have been anybody in the theater to preach to. Oh, look out. <laughs> there goes our Warner Brothers uh, sponsorship. Anyway, <clears throat> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ. And I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today we have a special episode with a guest. His name is Jimmy Hinton. Jimmy, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Jimmy Hinton. I am the preaching minister for the Somerset Church of Christ in Somerset, Pennsylvania. Okay. We've asked Jimmy to be on the show today because we recently did a podcast over 2 Peter chapter 2 and also the book of Jude. Those chapters cover quite a bit of information as far as the profile of a false teacher is concerned. And some of that profile involves deception, uh, sexual sin, greed, and how they are uh, able to deceive people in the church, how the church receives them. Now, that overlaps into ministry that um, Jimmy is a part of and that he promotes. Uh, Jimmy, would you like to tell us about your ministry? Sure. So I'm uh, an advocate for uh, sexual abuse, uh, particularly sexual abuse of minors. And uh, that all began um, really with a disclosure from somebody that she had been sexually abused by my own father. Uh, that was in 2011. And uh, I'm actually preaching at the church where my dad preached for 27 years. And so uh, it was quite a shock to find out that uh, there was an allegation of sexual abuse. And uh, uh, long story short, both my mom and I reported that to the police and uh, not having any idea how many victims there would be. And he confessed to 23 victims, though we think he has many more, uh, probably into the hundreds. And uh, he's currently serving a life sentence in prison. So I began... Uh, advocacy work and, and uh, training people how to, how to spot child predators uh, because we had obsessed over the fact that we all missed it. Uh, so that's what I do now. I'm also a, um, I'm a certification specialist with GRACE, uh, which is Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, and, uh, and I preach full-time. Wow. Well, Jimmy, we appreciate the work that you're doing, and I know that I've listened to your podcast and uh, videos that you have online for almost a year, a little over a year now, and so I've learned quite a bit. Um, Nick, what are your thoughts so far? Yeah, and uh, if you want more of the story, if you want to hear more of the story of uh, Jimmy and um, his finding out about what his dad was involved in, there he just did a... Uh, a training seminar with the Westside Church of Christ earlier this year in January. And Westside has posted all of those videos, I think there's seven or eight of them, on their YouTube channel, and you can uh, listen to those uh, uh, on on YouTube. Um, Jimmy, what we want to do in this first episode is kind of build a, a profile of the predator. And 
folks may have some maybe caricature idea in their mind of what a, a sexual predator, a pedophile might look like, maybe someone who's uh, rather disheveled, hair is unkempt, uh, clothes are all askew, and uh, they wear socks with sandals, just kind of a weirdo who sits in a corner. But what what does a typical predator look like? Uh <laughs> That's a that's a very difficult question to answer because I don't know that there there is such a thing. Um, mm. I, I think one of the things that we focus on and one of the reasons that we're so bad at prevention is because we look for typical typical people, uh, typical behaviors. So we come up with these uh, the little catchphrase the red flag behavior and offenders. Um, I'm here to tell you that looking for these generic red flag behaviors, it just doesn't work. So it, it's a little bit of a complex issue. And so I think more specifically, instead of looking for a typical offender, uh, we need to really understand what their techniques are and hmm. what their concrete behaviors are. Uh, instead of these generic behaviors, uh, we need to think in terms of concrete behaviors. And it's almost like finding pieces to a puzzle and then having the tools to fit those pieces to the puzzle together uh, wow. because those pieces to the puzzle tell a story and it's not you know it's not a matter of just saying hey give me a give me a quick checklist of things to look for because i get people who email me those kinds of questions pretty often sure. they'll say hey just give me a list of things that i need to be looking for well it's not it's not that simple hmm. um so you're not going to walk into a room full of a crowd and see this guy that guy this guy those are the ones to watch out for. It's not that easy. No, but eventually, I mean, it's it's like anything else. I mean, it's a skill that you develop. And so eventually you do get to the point where uh, people begin to stand out really quickly and you actually have tangible things that you can look for. Um, and especially when you combine uh, both behaviors, these concrete behaviors with techniques. When you understand the techniques behind what they do, uh, that becomes vital, and nobody's teaching that right now. Sure. Well, Jimmy, as I was looking back over Second Peter chapter two and the book of Jude, uh, I had questions as far as I, I think there's a bridge here between theology and what you're talking about with these predators who use specific techniques in order to stay under the radar to deter suspicion, and it seems like there's some overlap here and there's an element of secrecy that I wondered if you would comment on how do false teachers slash sexual predators, how do they keep their sexual sin secret? Cause there is a lot of sexual sin being hinted at in the scriptures from these false teachers. How are they getting away with this? Yeah. Especially in second Peter. I mean, in second Peter, it's clearly sexual sin that, that Peter's addressing. Right. And, you know, I think especially in, in our tradition, you know, we grew up thinking about false teachers in terms of people who we disagree with. Um, that's not what Scripture talks about when it's talking about false teachers. And if you put it in the proper context, often false teachers, false false prophets, etc., they're extorting people um, and they're exploiting them sexually uh, or in some other form of, of uh, severe oppression. So, right. you know, it's not just about teaching doctrine that that's wrong. Uh, it's about using doctrine 
uh, for sexual or financial gain. Mm. So, you know, as far as keeping secrecy, uh, how do they maintain the secrecy? How do they keep things secret? Well, in in any form of oppression, to get away with it, uh, you have to maintain a facade. That becomes vital. You have to build a facade that other people are going to see that that really veils the the inner heart, um, Mm. who we truly are. And if you can build that facade and maintain that facade, uh, then the next crucial step is to deny, 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 uh, while creating this pristine image so that nobody in their right mind would ever believe the allegations. Um, how, how connected are, uh, pedophiles and sexual predators, how connected are they to, to one another and, and to those who have, um, like-minded intentions? Well, the short, unsatisfactory answer is we really don't know. Hmm. Um, What we do know is that there's an underworld, um, and and it's this network of pedophiles that we know exists in the virtual uh, world. So, you know, you have the dark web. um, You have this really connected network of pedophiles online we know that. We know that for certain. Uh, we can track that uh, to, to some degree. But, uh, you know, we know about trafficking too. Trafficking, human trafficking is the fastest growing illegal business in the world. Um, in fact, in July of 2017, there was a Forbes article called The World's Fastest Growing Crime. And they say that UNICEF, which is the United Nations, oh, I'm trying to think of the acronym, United Nations. Uh, International Child Emergency Fund. They estimate that right now there's 21 million trafficked people around the world, and 5.5 million of those are children. Hmm. Uh, the trafficking business, human trafficking, is a 32 billion dollar business globally, and I mean, hands down, statistically, it's growing so rapidly that that everybody's alarmed. I mean, it's a pandemic. It's a global pandemic. So we know that there's a certain degree of networking. Um, You know, there's a high degree of coordination among pedophiles who uh, buy and sell these women and children and, you know, and men too. There are men who are trafficked as well. So we know that they're networked to a a pretty sophisticated degree, but how widespread is this and how do they do it? Uh, Nobody really knows that. Wow. So you could have a situation where there's a guy who's building and maintaining his facade by himself. Could you have a situation where there are other people in the congregation helping this guy build and maintain a facade? I, I think so. Um, I've seen things and, and I, I can't publicly disclose them for, uh, the biggest reason is the safety reason, but, uh, I know of pedophile rings even within the churches of Christ, uh, I know of pedophile rings that were somewhat organized. Uh, again, nobody knows the degree to to how tightly organized those pedophile rings are, but where children are being trafficked from one church to the next, and pedophiles are clearly uh, networked with one another, they're communicating with one another, and they're trading these children back and forth. Uh, we know that that happens. Wow. How they do it, uh, I think that's probably anybody's guess okay speaking of the church um you know uh 
Jude talks about, I call them ungodly creeps, these ungodly people who creep into the church. Um, do, do these guys deliberately choose churches, uh, Christian daycares um, for a reason? Uh, yes and no. Um, they're naturally going to migrate to places where children gather. I mean, that's just what they do. Uh, to what degree they intentionally target churches and and schools, daycares, things like that, um, I don't really know. I, I I know that they do it, but I don't know that they say, well, I'm going to go into a preaching profession because I'm going to have access to all these children. I, I don't know that they do that. Um, I, I think basically... Any field, any profession, you're going to have pedophiles who who reside there. I mean, they're everywhere. They're all around us. So, yeah, I, I think they do to a degree, but I, I think you're going to find a higher percentage in fields where it's normalized to have contact with children. So youth ministry, uh, school teachers, um, doctors. daycare. Yeah, doctors. Yeah, absolutely, doctors. Uh, coaching. Uh, there is a high percentage of pedophiles that are uh, after-school coaches. Camp directors. Yeah, yeah, camp. Yep, camp is a huge one. So, Jimmy, let's say you suspect somebody in a congregation, and is there something that the predator has, like a some sort of radar that they have where they know that they're being suspected by other people um i know that that's not something you can necessarily put a concrete you know thing on but what are your thoughts on that yeah um i talk a lot about intuition and uh one of the best books that just was a life-changing book for me uh that has nothing to do with sexual abuse um it has to do with uh domestic violence but it was by gavin de becker and it's called the gift of fear and he talks a lot about this intuition that's a God-given gift, uh, which is why the book is called Gift of Fear. Um, and he says, we're all intuitive creatures by nature. But in Western culture, because we're so science-driven, uh, we rationalize everything. You know, kind of the this movement that started in the 1700s, um, Lockean kind of reasoning where we reason everything and, and we think through it really logically. Uh, so what happens is we kind of talk down to people who use their intuition. Hmm. And we say, no, 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 you need to look at the facts. Look at the facts. Um, and so we have this this ability to really talk ourselves out of, out of uh, these gut feelings that we get. And so yeah. Gavin DeBecker says we need to do the exact opposite. He said, there's a reason why the hairs on your body stand up. When somebody walks past you and every hair on your body stands up, there's a reason for that. Um, wow. And so you need to really look into that and say, okay, now that this person has raised my my uh, intuition, I need to start looking into what it was about that person that, that raised the intuition. So all that to say, abusers, ironically, are incredibly intuitive people. And they've tapped into that intuition and so they'll tell you. Uh, they can walk into any room and within a matter of three seconds, 
they can tell not only who the vulnerable children are, but they can tell you who the vulnerable adults are. Wow. And so it becomes a matching game. It's not about picking the right vulnerable child because um, to some degree, I mean to a high degree, all children are vulnerable. Children are malleable. Uh, children are concrete thinkers. You can tell a kid to, to come over here, uh, I have a dog to look at or whatever it is, and, and they're going to comply. You know, children, unless you're the parent, children, children comply. Um, and so abusers, uh, especially pedophilic abusers, it becomes a matching game. They have to match the right vulnerable child to the right vulnerable parent. And it's going to be a parent who they don't think is going to be a, a parent who has this high level of intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. I'm not an arrogant person, so I, I don't I don't have the illusion that my kids can never be abused. However, an abuser is going to peg me the, the second he walks into a room, they're going to know that I'm a highly intuitive person. Um, they're just going to know that naturally. And Peter speaks to that. You know, in Second Peter chapter 2, he talks about them being creatures of instinct, hmm. like irrational animals, like creatures of instinct. These guys just know. They know who the vulnerable women are. Uh, they know who the vulnerable children are. Uh, they know how to target their victims intuitively. So what happens, Jimmy, when multiple people start to become alarmed or aware of suspicious activity when it seems like, you know, the gig is up? Uh, how do these false teachers, how do these predators, how do they get out of it? Or is it, you know, pretty much game over as soon as multiple people suspect that person? Well, ironically, uh, my mom and I just recorded a podcast yesterday that's going to air tomorrow uh, where, we, where we speak to this. And what they do is um, they're going to find out who the suspicious people are. Uh, and the way that they find out is they come in and they hack our I call it our want to believe system. It's hmm. what we want to believe in other people or the, the converse of that, what we don't want to believe about certain people. They're going to know that about every single individual in that in that congregation or whatever the organization is. And they do that through the series of, of testing. And, you know, they do it through narrative. They do it through asking questions. They do it through giving leading statements. And so they're going to know, I, I can guarantee you, they're going to know in any church or any organization who the highly suspicious people are because some people are just naturally intuitive. The abuser is going to know that. And they're going to do one of two things. Either one, once they've outed those people or flushed them out, they're going to know which people to avoid within the organization or they're going to do certain things to really agitate those people and get those people to leave. That's the irony in this. Mm. It's typically not the abusers who leave church. Um, it's the abusers causing other people to leave, and that's by design. Wow. So how do they use narrative? That was the only part I, I didn't understand. Yeah, so narrative is a it, it's a really important thing. So um, they're going to find out, like, like, I don't know you guys well at all. You know, we, we've not met, we've not talked in person until now. And so... I could ask you guys, like, what do you think about grace? Um, what do you th- what do you think about forgiveness? Uh, and I, 
And it's just an open-ended question. And it seems benign, but what I'm doing is I'm mining information from you guys and I'm finding out. Uh, do you guys believe that it doesn't matter what a person has done? They're redeemable. Uh, they should be forgiven. You shouldn't really bother them. You shouldn't ask a lot of probing questions. Um, I'm going to find out if you guys have this fear of coming off as being judgmental. You know, you guys are preachers. Um, I would ask you questions or or give you uh, leading statements and just see how you respond to those statements. So I'm going to find out, are you guys people who um, really look for people who are suspect? Or are you guys who, are, who have a high degree of naivety and you just uh, give everybody the benefit of the doubt? I can find that out in a matter of five minutes. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to um, a sexual predator, uh, a pedophile, I mean, you talk about they're, they're more likely to run the abused off rather than them actually be taken away. Do they, do they revel in their ability to deceive everybody? Or are they um, insatiable? Will they ever stop when it comes to their predation? Well, do they, do they revel in it? Absolutely. And that took me that took me a long time to get to that place where that just rolls off my tongue. Um, I really struggled with that because you and I don't have a capacity to think in terms of actually torturing victims. And that's what it is. You know, the, the, the abusers talk about, oh my goodness, I have this attraction uh, to children and I just struggle with temptation. And so they're using our terminology. And again, that goes back to hacking our want-to-believe system. We want to believe that everybody struggles with sin the way that you and I struggle with sin. That, you know, temptation is is something that you're aware of and you try to avoid and you pray to God that you don't fall into temptation. And um, they know that about us. And so they adopt our terminology, but the reality is um, they derive pleasure in inflicting harm on the most innocent of God's creatures. And I know that, uh, and I'm not going to share traumatizing stories here, but I've spoken to enough survivors, I mean hundreds of them, to know that these guys absolutely know that they're inflicting harm on these children as they're sexually abusing them, and they just don't care. In fact, they use that against the victims. And we're talking kids anywhere from two years old to... You know, up to up to in their teenage years. It doesn't matter how young. It doesn't matter how innocent. It doesn't matter how vulnerable. These guys abs- absolutely derive pleasure in inflicting the most amount of harm on the most innocent of God's creatures. And once you understand that, um, you realize that we're dealing with a whole different animal, wow. which is why Peter comes unhinged in Second Peter chapter two. Yeah, you know, he says they revel, they revel in their deceptions. As they feast with you. Sounds demonic. Absolutely. It is demonic. So if I'm hearing you right, they're, they're never going to stop with this, right? No, I don't think they ever will. Go ahead, Nick. Well, uh, so you mentioned how our one difference between someone who struggles with temptation, like you, me, Alex versus a, a sexual predator is our ability to feel remorse over stuff that we do um, 
whereas it sounds like a sexual predator doesn't have that. Are there other differences between, you know, the average person who struggles with temptation and a uh, sexual predator? Yeah, um, all of us know what it is to struggle with temptation. We know what it is to to have our conscience nagging at us. Uh, we all hate our conscience, to be quite frank. Um, it's that annoying voice that says you shouldn't be doing this. Uh, what are you thinking? What are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. Um, we try to ignore it for a time. And if we bypass that conscience and we do it anyway, that conscience comes back to haunt us. And then we feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel remorse. All of us know what it is to struggle with that. Now, take a take an oppressor. Uh, take somebody who derives pleasure in inflicting harm on innocent people. They're all about plotting and planning. Everything is well thought out. It's well calculated. Um, it's precise. Um, and then when they do get caught, if they do get caught, they they lie. They cover their tracks. I mean, they can look you right square in the eye. And had I not experienced this with my own father, had I not dug into his actual records to find out what he actually did, and let me tell you, that that was a disturbing process. But I had to do it because he would look me square in the eyes. I would go visit him in in county jail before he went to um, state prison. And he would look me in the eyes and tears would be rolling down his cheeks and... um, He'd say, I swear to God that what I did to, to these, and he did call them victims, but he said, what I did to these victims wasn't anything like what the media made it out to be. And he, like, he would go into specifics. I went back and read actual public records, and I dug deep. And that was not a pleasant experience to do that, but I had to know. I had to know, is he being truthful? The reality is he was lying through his teeth and mm. looking me square in the eyes with tears rolling down his cheeks. And I'm like, I have no capacity in my brain for this. I had never experienced that before. And I'm not capable of that. Wow. And so, you know, once once you realize that and once you talk to – I've actually talked to his victims. And I, I asked one of them, I said, you know, if this is too personal of a question, don't answer it. But I said, did he know when he was abusing you that that it was torturing you, that it was inflicting harm on you? And her answer, um, trigger warning for, for your guests, um, I'm not going to be graphic or anything, but, but it is a trigger warning for, uh, for abuse victims. Sure. She said, if tears rolling down my cheeks and me begging him to stop as he was raping me was any indication to him that, that he was hurting me. She said, you're absolutely right that he knew he was hurting me. And when wow. you hear that out of the mouth of one of your own father's victims, you realize that everything he's told me has been an absolute lie and he's done it really well. And he's reeled me in and I've had compassion and I've, you know, I was falling for it. And so uh, yeah, they absolutely revel in it, and um, they do it while they feast with us at the table, and they have no conscience. I mean, they are true psychopaths. A true psychopath has no ability to feel empathy. Jimmy, how do you think 
someone gets to that point where their conscience is shattered into a million pieces and it's this level of darkened depravity that we don't even have anything in our experience to to really comprehend this to to uh think through it and understand that this is real and people do this and they they like it and they don't feel bad about it how does someone how does a predator get to that point yeah it was interesting last night i went to a, a local symposium on uh the heroin epidemic we live in a region where it's just um man it is just in epidemic proportions and one of the speakers started out by saying empathy is a muscle and he said it's something that you have to exercise in order to extend that to people in their darkest deepest moments when when everybody else abandons them and i thought you know isn't that isn't that interesting that's an interesting concept that empathy is a muscle and in the same respect learning depravity and and learning to be callous and learning to be cold and and learning to justify your actions to the point where you can do the things that abusers do and uh, not just get away with it but lie about it and continue to cover it up and continue to create many more victims. When you get to that point, that's taken practice. Nobody wakes up and and, and is just that cold and that calloused and calculated. Uh, It takes practice to get to that point. So Jimmy, what you're saying is this level of, of darkness and depravity, it's not just the absence of empathy or sympathy or goodness, but it's the actual practice and implementation of strengthening the the muscle of 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 darkness, of callousness, of hardness. Uh, is that yeah. kind of what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, I think I, I think that's very accurate. Wow. And I think James, I think James speaks to that too when he says, you know, when when you guys are tempted, don't say that God is tempting me. If for God doesn't tempt anybody, then he gives it, he lays out this process, and it all begins with curiosity, and it, it, it's entertaining that curiosity. Wow. Um, and and he says you're enticed, uh, you're reeled in, and then I I say that sin, you know, we talk about sin as being separation from God. I don't know that I agree with that definition of sin anymore. Um, I call sin uh, temptation in action. It's when you actually put that temptation into action and you begin doing those things and then that cycle starts uh, it starts gaining teeth and, and it starts pulling you in. Eventually you get to the point where you know Paul uses the language of slavery. You become enslaved to sin. Wow. And once you're in that bondage, once you get to that point, uh, you know, James actually talks about the point where you get to death. I don't think he's speaking about physical death. I think he's talking about a spiritual death where you get to the point where you're so deadened, you're so depraved, you're so calloused that there's no coming back from that. Speaking of spiritual death, um, both Jude and Peter talk about the judgment of God upon the the false teachers. Um, what What does God have in store for predators at the judgment. All I can say is I'm glad I'm not God, and um, I don't want to be anywhere near these <laughs> these people who have who have done this and done it unapologetically and have been unrepentant. Um, 
You know, Psalm 89, 14 says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Okay, so uh, I'll read the second part of that verse here in a second, but let's wrap our minds around this for a second. Righteousness and justice are the very foundation of God's throne. We don't talk about that in the churches. We talk about God is love. You know, um, it doesn't matter what you've done. All people are redeemable. We have all these cliches that have nothing to do with God's foundation. And, and I say, if we can't even get the foundation right, if we have a faulty foundation for which God sits upon, everything else that we begin to build on that, it just crumbles. And it doesn't right. make sense. And so we create this this very bizarre picture of God because we've gotten the foundation wrong. So God's foundation is righteousness and justice. In other words, you know, the, the, the Hebrew words that are used there, uh, it's a term that's used for balancing scales. God begins with these balanced scales. God never tips the scale in in one direction or the other with any of us. God always has a fair hand, and that's his foundation. And then the second part of that verse is steadfast love, uh, which can be translated this way, kindness to those in need. Um, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So the steadfast love and the faithfulness are not God's foundation. Those are what go before God once his foundation has been established, which is righteousness and justice. So God is a fair God. God is a just God. And God is, God is love because God is just. And God is just because God is love. You can't divorce justice and love. Wow. You know, Jimmy, when you talk about these kinds of uh, people and the stories, I know you didn't go you know, into detail in any specific story, which is good, I think, for this context. But really, I mean, it makes, it makes you question things. It makes you feel all kinds of things. And one of those things I imagine for a lot of people would be anger. Like, we, how do we make this stop? How yeah. do we... Um, how do we protect our families? How do we protect our churches? Um, there's, I think, a a righteous indignation that is deserved in this kind of situation. And I, I don't know. I think maybe that's part of why Peter and Jude bring out some of these verses about the destruction coming upon the ungodly knowing that, hey, if these guys never repent, they never get caught, uh, it sounds like these are the kind of guys that are going to show up before the throne of Christ uh, as wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're going to say, I'm a faithful follower of yours, Jesus. It sounds like these are the kind of guys who think they can pull one even over the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus will tell them, no, uh, you're a wolf, you have my lamb's blood coming down your mouth. I know who you are. You don't practice righteousness. You never did. Um, you practice lawlessness, and now you're going to go to be with the devil and his angels. You're going to be cast out into outer darkness. I mean, when we talk about these kinds of judgment verses, Jimmy, how, how comforting do you think it is to bring that element in that God will 
bring judgment upon these kinds of people? Does that comfort people, or is it hard for people to hear that? I think it's meant to comfort people. Um, justice is a good thing. You know, that's one thing when anytime that there's a really bad crime, whether it's a homicide, uh, a rape, um, abuse of a minor, whatever that is, the families of the victims always seek justice. They come back, and if you, if you watched any of the Larry Nasser sentencing, of the 150-some survivors who, who spoke in Judge Aquilina's courtroom, they all were saying the same thing. We are asking that you give him the maximum sentence because mm -hmm. we believe in justice. Okay, so I, I think that justice is meant to bring comfort uh, to people who've been oppressed, but we've distorted that and we we've twisted that and we've come back and, and we place demands on the on the shoulders of the victims of the oppressors, not the oppressors. We don't place this burden on the shoulders of the oppressors. We give the oppressors a free pass. We welcome them into our churches. And then when that confuses the victims, um, we look at the victims and we say, well, you're just not being forgiving enough. You need to forgive them. You need to move on. Uh, or, uh, you know, we we say things like, you're just holding on to bitterness. And if you don't forgive, after all, God's not going to forgive you. It makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense through the eyes of God, through the eyes of his scripture, and certainly not for the victims. And so I think they're they're stuck with this really strange conundrum because they believe in forgiveness, but we've distorted forgiveness and we've made it unconditional, except we place the condition on the shoulders of the victim and we say, you need to forgive and not just forgive, but you need to do it immediately. Wow. So uh, the predator is never going to stop. You talked uh, a bit about how, you know, visiting your own father, he, he was bawling his eyes out over what had happened. And, um, and I, while I think most people want to be gracious and, and forgiving, what are the odds that uh, a pedophile, a sexual predator, will ever experience true and full repentance uh, well, to adopt the language of Hebrews chapter 6, it's an impossibility. Um, that makes a lot of people extremely uneasy because of our bad theology. But let's not just take Hebrews chapter 6 and then Hebrews 10, which is a clarifier of, of Hebrews chapter 6. Um, it's uh, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this continual sin. It's this, it's this unrelenting, unrepenting heart where you continue to sin uh, you know, and to your shame, you're crucifying Christ all over again. Um, it's not that people mess up uh, like you and I mess up, but then all of a sudden they can't repent because they were once Christians and, and my goodness, they should have known better and so now it's impossible to repent. That's not what Hebrews 6 is speaking to. I think Hebrews 6 is speaking to the same thing that Second Peter chapter 2 and, and Jude speak to. Notice in Second Peter 2 and in Jude... Notice Peter and Jude's position towards these men. They never come in and they never say to the church, you know what, 
you should bring them back into the church, but but just be cautious. Be cautious when you bring them in and build accountability to help them out so that they don't fall back into, into temptation. Uh, have a contract with them where you have accountability partners and you're helping protect the victims that they created while at the same time you're helping hold them accountable. Notice that Peter never uses that language. In fact, his language is very offensive. Uh, his, his language won't preach today. In today's pop culture church, <laughs> Second Peter 2 won't preach. Jude won't <laughs> preach. It, your congregants aren't going to come back and be like, my, what a wonderful sermon. Um, but listen to the language. There's nothing in there that even hints at the possibility of taking these people who, by the way, are preachers. There's no hint at accepting these guys and bringing them into the church and 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 trying to get them to, to see reason, trying to get them to repent, not even a hint. Peter's flat out mean. Peter says they're getting exactly what, what's coming to them. Um, Peter's harsh. He talks about judgment. Um, it's pretty brutal. When you read Second Peter 2 and Jude, and there are so many other scriptures, sure. both in the Old and New Testaments, um, but I think that's because Peter, Jude, Paul, Jesus, um, Jesus uses some very offensive language. These guys get the foundation of God. God's foundation is righteousness and justice. You do what's right and true and honorable, and you mete out justice. God gives people what's owed them, both good and bad. Justice is not just meting out bad things to people. Justice is God granting people what's owed them, whether good or bad. And so, yeah, I, I, I think I think it is an impossibility. Uh, with that said, um, I don't know. I, I still rest, I wrestle with that a little bit because it's been so ingrained in me that everybody everybody should be. Uh, taught everybody's redeemable i've been taught that my whole life right and so it's 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 still difficult i still wrestle with that but when you read scripture it makes sense that there's a certain class of people where peter whether it's peter whether it's jude whether it's paul jesus you name them they come back and they say you stay away from these people have nothing to do with them you know i wrote an article oh it was last year sometime but it but my, my blog post was this. Dear church, stop trying to convert wolves. Mm, I remember that. Yeah. We don't distinguish between a wolf and a sheep. And so we take people who masquerade as sheep, but inwardly they're wolves. And we we place that same facade on the outside of them. We, may, we, we dress them up and we, we want to make them look like sheep. And so we're trying to convert people who are, they're not sheep. Right. And we pour all of our love and mercy and kindness upon them. And for some reason, we fall short pouring the love and mercy and compassion and protection upon their victims. Sure. Absolutely. Another question I had, Jimmy, um, was this element of greed that is often mixed in with the sexual sin mentioned in Second Peter 2 and in Jude. Yeah. Have you found this to be true that often with these sexual pedophiles, with these pedophiles, um, 
that they're also trying to swindle people out of money? Is there some sort of uh, material greed that comes into play here? This is kind of an interesting thing because a lot of people don't know this about uh, about my dad, about my family. But uh, you'd probably have to dig deep now because it was so long ago. Uh, but there are records that you can search for my dad's name. And back in, oh, it was 2000, 2001, I think, is when, when he had his sentencing. He was under uh, federal investi- criminal investigation for uh, money money laundering. And so he had worked with um, this group of of people who started a, a fictitious company, and they were selling stocks and bonds and those sorts of things. Well, what they were doing was um, they were taking the money uh, from these clients, and they literally took these old people's – I mean they took their retirement money. They wow. took every penny of these women. One of these who was my dad's quote-unquote customer was one of our church members. He literally took this woman's entire, I mean, every penny of it, took her retirement and quote unquote invested it into this company. And she was very hesitant and reluctant and it just didn't feel right. Um, He convinced her that this was the right thing to do. And, you know, it was going to be the best thing since, um, you know, sliced bread. and, And so she ended up doing it. She lost everything. Wow. And so, you know, um, all these guys, uh, this is the irony too. All of these guys, except for my dad, wound up in prison. And the day of his sentencing, I was there the day of, the day of his sentencing. I showed up, and I kid you not, I kid you not, the prosecuting attorney left his family on vacation. They were on vacation. He flew back to Pennsylvania to give a character test- testimony on behalf of my dad. I kid, I honestly, oh, honest to God, I kid you not. <laughs> and so this guy not only swindled all these people out of their money, but looking back, I was like, he played everybody, all of us. And, and he was so believable. His story was so believable that, you know, he didn't know that these guys were corrupt. And, um, you know, he honestly thought it was an up and up company. He thought it was legit. And, I mean, convinced everybody, including the prosecuting attorney. Whoa. Yeah. But I'd say at the same time, you know, if we're looking for people who are greedy. Um, it's not enough it, on its it, own. It, it, does, it doesn't work because the irony in this is that these abusers are highly um, giving. They're giving of their time. They're giving of their money. Um, they're seen as generous. And they are generous. I mean that, that my dad he he gave lots of people money and gave freely. Um, he gave his time. He would when nobody else would do it. He he would out of his busy schedule. He'd go visit people in the hospital um, in the middle of the night when he got phone calls. He'd go sit in people's homes. I don't do that. I create boundaries for my family. You know, people joke about me being a twenty four seven minister, and I say I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that I'm not nice enough to be a 24/7 minister. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my family comes first and my church knows that. I tell them that and they're very supportive of that. But I say if you have an emergency in the middle of the night, call 911. And if it's something that's not a 911 emergency, call me and leave a voicemail cuz I will check it and then I'll decide if that's an emergency. That's yeah. that's, that's enough for me to leave my family. 
Yeah, you know, Jimmy, I think it goes back into that facade you were talking about at the beginning of the episode where, yeah, they're, they're giving with one hand, but it's because they're stealing with the other hand. Yeah, and Judas. That, Judas yeah, did it. Yeah, that giving is really just the building up of their facade. And so they're not really losing anything. They're just stealing over here, shifting what they steal into the giving aspect of their facade so that they can perpetuate their image and continue to revel in their deceptions. I mean, it's, it's a cycle of darkness. Sure. And I think it's interesting with Judas, you know, in John chapter 13, when Jesus identifies him as the betrayer, clearly identifies him as the betrayer, and he, and he looks at him in front of all the other disciples, and he says, what you're about to do, do quickly. Judas gets up after Jesus identifies him as the, as, as the betrayer, and what are his disciples? How do they respond? He must be going out to give to the poor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Wow. Well, Jimmy, um, I think we're going to have to split this up into two episodes. So we'll we'll and start to wrap up this episode. Sure. And, um, Nick, do you have any final questions for this episode? Um, no. Um, I just want to let listeners know that Probably by now, your paranoia meter is cranked to 11, all right? <laughs> the next episode, uh, Jimmy's going to get intensely practical um, as to how we can protect the weakest among us, and, and we'll, we're going to get into some of the tools that we as the church uh, can utilize uh, in order to defend against a very real threat, which are uh, the wolves that are out there. Absolutely. And um, this was a, an episode geared towards theology, geared towards connecting what we've seen in our, our Bible study with what is actually happening in reality amongst us in our congregations. So I appreciate everything Jimmy's uh, shared with us today. And uh, I know I'm taking away a lot. Um, Nick, what are you taking away with you today? Man, that bit about, because we are such a grace-oriented we try to be such a grace-oriented community as a church, um, and that bit about, uh, you know, we don't want to believe anybody's irredeemable, but Jimmy's talked about it from his experience and also from Scripture that there there are some guys out there who they're so far gone, their conscience seared is with a hot iron, that there's there's no coming back, and that's... Man, that's a that's a scary thing to to and to know that our God is a living is a living God, a living uh, fire, a consuming fire. Wow. Um, yeah. Ooh, I know um, something that struck me that I'm taking away is the idea of redefining some of our theology. Uh, sin, not just being the absence of of God or out of His presence, but really the the practice and implementation of those dark muscles uh, makes me want to redefine what darkness is. It's not just the absence of light, but it's an actual thing which you practice and exercise like a muscle. And um, boy, that just really, that's a, that's going to make you think for a while. Yeah. Well, just, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll end on this thought too. Um, you know, because, it, because a lot of people really get hung up on this and I've, I've been called all kinds of colorful names um, and told that I don't believe in grace, I don't believe in God's forgiveness, that's completely not true. That's absurd. Uh, but I ask people this question. If 
if everybody can come to repentance, as as we preach, as we hear, you know, as people say, there's nobody who's not redeemable. Um, then please explain to me Sodom and Gomorrah. Explain to me Genesis chapter six. You know, the flood narrative. Uh, explain to me. Uh, all these cities where you have entire people wiped out, um, and then contrast that with Nineveh. You know, you know that when people are are redeemable, when people can repent, God will always choose to relent. God wants to relent, even when um, Jonah was yelling at God, just so spitting mad with God. God still relented because the people of Nineveh, Nineveh repented. Hmm. And when you when you compare that to the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and look at Abraham's dialogue with God, um, man, they get down to five people. Lord, if there are five righteous people in this city, will you bring your wrath on the city for five for the sake of five righteous people? And it's God's response: For the sake of five righteous people, I will not destroy this city. And so my question is, you know, if we really believe that that everybody's redeemable and everybody can come to repentance, then why Sodom and Gomorrah and and why the Great Flood and, you know, all these narratives, they just don't make sense. Hmm. Well, I appreciate those words, Jimmy, and definitely giving us a lot to think about. Uh, We're going to pick this up in our part two of the guest interview with Jimmy Hinton. Uh, Again, if uh, you're listening to the podcast, be sure to check us out on iTunes, you can search Swordplay, or you can see our website at swordplay.cast.rocks. Feel free to shoot us a question at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be seeing you next time on part two on this episode with Jimmy Hinton. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.